I would just burn the lot down, all of it. The levels, the content, how we define a coach, when we define it, all of it, just start again. I'd just burn the whole lot down because we're just, yeah. Everything, essentially, everything in coaching is arbitrary and very little bit, very little of it is evidence informed. So what I mean by that is we've just made it up and we've made stuff up and it's just become normal. Whereas, you know, and you have to ask the question whether that, whether that's the best for our athletes, whether that's best for coach development, I don't know. So I would scrap the whole thing. Welcome back everybody to uh, episode four of season two of the Coaching Discourse podcast. Uh, we Hope that people enjoyed uh, episode three, which was uh, a discussion with Julian North on uh, whether or not uh, sport coaching is a knowledge building community. Uh, and I suppose it leads nicely into uh, today's episode, uh, which essentially is in conversation with Anna Stutter uh, and Chris Cushion. And I, I think just in, in advance of getting into the crux of it, uh, I'm keen to just table something uh, as someone who leads on uh, coach education policy and programs for a whole system here in, in, in Scotland, uh, working for the National Agency for Sport. Um, I, I believe on a macro level, this conversation might be uncomfortable at times for me to listen to, um, but one I'm very much um, looking forward to, uh, especially seeing as we're going to, to probably explore the, your recent paper, uh, Anna and Chris, along with uh, Nicola Clark. Um, but I'm not going to give too much away uh, on what we're going to delve into within the episode. I'm going to uh, offer over to Laurie initially to give a short introduction before we bring the guest in. Chris and Anna, I think on this one it would be really useful for you to give because there may be some listeners that tune into the podcast regularly that actually don't necessarily know much about what you do outside of the podcast. So it might be useful for this to offer a bit of context in your day-to-day roles and then we'll hand over to Chris to introduce himself as well. Oh, so me first. Um, yeah, hello, I'm uh, Dr Anna Sodzer and I work at Anglo Ruskin University in Cambridge um, as a senior lecturer in sport coaching and PE. So all, all the credentials out the way. Um, I did my PhD with uh, Chris as my supervisor at Loughborough University. Um, and that was looking at how coaches learn. Um, we followed some football coaches through their coach education and compared them with some people that were not doing their formal coach education at the time looked at how their knowledge and behaviour changed and how that happened or did not happen and why. Um, And alongside that, I'm a rugby coach, former player, um, and do a little bit of trying to apply what I've learned through my PhD and other research into helping some other coaches to learn too. Over to you, Chris. Thanks, Anna. I'm Professor Chris Cushion. I'm Professor of Coaching and Pedagogy at Loughborough University, where I've been since 2007. I've been an academic for, everyone hold the hats, 20 years now, so my 20th year in academia. And I did have a life before that, but I won't bore people to death with those things. Um, so I've been, as I say, been researching coaching actually since about the mid 90s when I first started to get an interest that I am a practicing coach I've been coaching for about 30 years again showing my age um, and kind of fell, fell into academia and, and researching coaching in a you know 
never ever never ever planned to end up doing the job I'm doing I actually thought I'd end up being a strength and conditioning coach but here I am uh, more into the coach learning and coach pedagogy side um, my initial work in coaching and coaching research was around coach behavior so systematic observation um, my PhD actually kind of drifted away well, I didn't drift away from that it was made a seismic leap in a different direction really a more sociological look I did an ethnography um, in a professional sporting organization um, and just trying to understand my interest really was around the coaching process and coaching conceptually and I would say that over the years that that strand although it's become less probably less in vogue these days although we could talk about the conceptual development of coaching a lot because I think we've kind of stopped doing that a little bit um, but I would say that's an, a research interest of mine I still think about the concept what what is coaching um, still do a bit of coaching behavior stuff but really that's more about uh, linking into other things collecting objective data about what coaches do is a really useful tool and resource to open up other kinds of conversations so that's another strand and then coach learning and development again has become increasingly popular but I'd say I've been looking at that for about 10 years as well so kind of the, the whole coaching gamut really yeah weirdly for you say about 10 years I started my PhD more than 10 years ago now which is quite a scary thought <laughs> was it really that long ago Anna? yeah I started in 2010 <laughs> yeah yeah I would say that um, probably your, your yours and Will's projects were the real first serious kind of empirical look at coach education from my perspective. You know, I'd been talking about it for a while. I mean, what was interesting is that we did a review, a commissioned review for what was Sports Coach UK is now UK Coaching, where we reviewed coach learning. So we won a bit to, to do that. And... Um, and it became increasing, you know, incredibly obvious that we we investing and spending a lot, a lot of time, money and energy doing coach education and coach development, coach education then, more so called coach development now. But no one had actually worked out if it worked or not. <laughs> so there was a lot of money being thrown at stuff. Um, and it's like, OK, well, maybe we need to ask that question about does it actually make any difference? Are we, we're putting people through courses and programs, assuming that it makes them better or changes them in some way. But we actually didn't have any evidence that that was the case. So really, that was kind of the kind of the idea that got you, where, you know, that's the start of your journey, really bringing you in to answer, answer that question, essentially. And I wonder as well, and I should have included this in, in the introduction, maybe if the two of you could just speak to why, uh, for the listeners, you, you know, you've, we're, we've got the two of you together to discuss this. So maybe a bit about your background together, your relationship, how long you've known, be aware of that. So maybe one of you could just give a little bit of background. Come on, Anna, you go first. <laughs> I think Chris has already said that. <laughs> he said uh, he's uh, given some context as to where I uh, came in so I guess Chris through that big review from 2009 they yeah. identified that we didn't didn't know there was no evidence for whether coach education actually had any impact or not um, yeah. and so my PhD project was advertised um, and I applied and got it even though I didn't actually know before I saw that that you could do research in coaching because <laughs> um, I came from a sports psychology so that was good on Chris to remain open-minded enough to take on someone with a psychology background um, <laughs> um, and I learned a lot and I, I 
short amount of time, I, I guess. So, oh, I mean, I think the, origi- the original funder for that work, we actually got two PhDs. One was Anna, one was another person, and they were both they were um, both asking the same question, but going to do it from a different theoretical lens. So Anna was definitely going to be a more cognitive behavioural look, which I, you know isn't something I'm interested in and aware of, but I wouldn't say is my strongest suit necessarily from a theoretical point of view. And the other was going to be a more um, constructionist or sociological look at the context that that or the environment that creates learning again with the same organization so there were two projects that ran side by side Anna stayed the course and uh, the other project though finishing didn't really quite um, get to the space that I was hoping it would do but it was part of a kind of a bigger thing try, again trying to bring the, some different perspectives together to, to look at the same issue and the same question really. And we spent some fun times doing uh, collecting data on courses. And we did spend some fun times <laughs> on courses. We did uh, quite a few courses in quite a different number of places. Yeah, yeah. And I was also reflecting quite recently on how my car was like a, a key feature of my PhD research, and that I spent a lot of time just driving around to different football clubs. I actually interviewed someone in my car for my first PhD <laughs> interview which was really awkward because yeah, we'd arranged no. to meet at a pub, I think it was, but it was closed no, and we were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah we've ended, I've ended up doing interviews in cars because the venue was just too noisy and you couldn't hear anything. And it's like you end up singing in your car, don't you? Which is, yeah, a bit weird. Um, yeah, and, and obviously, um, over the years involved and with other projects, including the recent coach developer project so other other projects that we've done looking at coach education coach developer and has been a part of so we've been working together what is it crikey 10 years well that that is quite scary (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole decade (laughs) it's interesting to see how the work has evolved as well transitioning from perhaps those structured formal programs into perceived less formal programs in terms of uh, the coach developer program that's maybe outlined within the context of of uh, of the the paper that we might discuss which yeah. is the yeah. the discursive construction of, of learning and high performance coach education yeah well there's definitely been a transition hasn't there between i mean i again i can remember in 2006 writing a way, writing the argument to move away from training into education and learning as an idea and now we've moved from education and learning into development. So with it, again, there we've had this kind of shift, and what you know what those terms mean for practitioners and people on the ground and courses or programs of study is again quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm, before we get into the question, I'm, I'm starting to reflect already against the the backdrop of a timeline of perhaps when you're raising these questions or the research is conducted against when actually. Um, more regulated forms of coach education uh, came into existence yeah. in 2002 to 2003 and you're describing asking questions in 2004 and um, yeah. and getting commissioned research in 2009 were, were, were educational frameworks mature enough even at that point to be able to, to frame or ask those questions. I mean I was lucky or unlucky enough to sit at the DCMS and talk about the original UKCC so I was on the original group back in 2000 something that started talking about it and and the thing that was sketched out in central london didn't really resemble the thing that ended up 
you know, um, and the, pro the product, the broad product that ended up as UKCC, it was probably, what's the word? A little bit of watered down from the original, kind of that original group. And we were very well intentioned and had high hopes that we could put some structures in. Um, but I think there's always been an imbalance, isn't there, between um, people attend, you know, the volume of people attending courses and the number of courses being put on and the, ev and the evidence informing those, but also the evidence, you know, the evidence collected on the impact of them. I think that's always lagged behind and, and the frameworks and the structures that support them again has always been a little bit lagging. We might talk about the reasons for that if that's something we, <laughs> we want to talk about. But. No, no, for sure. And there's been, there's been a question swinging around my head for a couple of years, which is, you know, what is coach education the solution to what was the problem in the first place? And why did that seem like a suitable solution at the, yeah. at the time? Well, lots of unqualified people doing coaching was the problem, wasn't it? And, and, non, and where there was coach education development, a non-standardised approach. So it was an attempt to try to, and kind of professionalise is the wrong word, although I expect the late Pat Duffy was really keen on this notion of professionalisation, but just to, you know, give, you know, vocational qualification equivalents, really. So to map it onto frameworks. So if you've got a level, whatever, that can, that's, a, you know, that, that's a door that can swing both ways vocationally for you so you can take your qualification in coaching and put it to another qualification because it's on a framework and recognized so there was this you know there's this drive to make it make to professionalize but also make make the space a bit more credible and you know educationally informed and credible and all of those things so you know you can see you know i think the stats for the people number of people practicing without any qualifications whatsoever in the early noughties were alarming. They're still probably quite frightening now, but um, they were really alarming. You know, you could anyone could stick the shoe, stick the tracksuit on with coach written on it and just get on with it without any kind of regulation or qualification or anything like that. So, you know, that was the problem it was trying to fix. Um, and I was in a meeting as early as uh, Tuesday this week, um, where 45% uh, I think was the number cited of unqualified coaches within the system in the UK. Still that high. Wow. That's worrying, isn't it? That really is worrying. Well, the other scary thing about it being 10 years since I started my PhD <laughs> is when you think about what's changed. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, the alarming, you know, the, the alarming thing is that... Um, you know, I do some work with John Lyle and we republished this, the book Coaching Concepts, Sport Coaching Concepts in, in 2017. And in 2016, we were reviewing the chapters. We, we divided the work and review, we were reviewing the chapters and I added some material to it and he updated some of his stuff. And bearing in mind, he wrote that book in 90, the original book was written in 98. It came out in 2002. From 1998, you're reading some of that stuff going, yeah, we, we don't know that. We haven't fixed that. That's still the same. And it was, there is a, seems to be a flurry of progress doesn't it but when the dust settles and you look at actually what's different and what's changed it's like uh, a little bit depressing really because uh, you know we we reinvent quite a lot don't we yeah and it, it's interesting look i i draw upon quite recent experience in, in 2018 um, sitting in a room presenting to a, a number of governing bodies i think up to 40 of them in scotland um, and in the room included colleagues from from now UK Coaching, formerly Sport Coach UK, Simspa, 
uh, ourselves. Uh, and, I, and I put up a slide around, well, in the absence of UKCC, what do we want coach education to be? And we had these lists of statements around, you know, being participant-centered and vertical and horizontal learning pathways and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And everyone's like, yeah, that's, 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 that's definitely where we want to take coach education. And I, I had just one quick slide transition, which was an animation to drop something in. And there were statements from the coaching task force report back in 2001. Which are all of those things, right? Yeah, and, and none of it, none of it really changed. Um, so, so you're right. It's like you know, I think that we that there's lots of real um, positive and meaningful intentions behind wanting to do something, but sometimes the system just gets in the way. Yeah, um, yeah, and we huff and puff, don't we? There's lots of stuff happening, but it's still what I mean. What can what does it concern me? I'm not sure it concerns the right word, but. You know, we're conceptualising a level two award, whatever that is, as two days of this and two days of that, you know, and essentially we've not changed the wrapper. We've not changed that idea in 20 years, you know, a level two in 2002. The content might be different and we might, you know, we might think of the learners, you know, there's stuff, but basically the structure is essentially the same in the amount of learning hours, what we'd expect, you know, there's so much of it is just the same. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of kind of petrol and boxer matches, but there aren't that many people who actually want to do that. <laughs> you know, if we're going to, you know, don't salami slice this, let's actually do something different, you know. Um, doing things, yeah, better, and look, you know, it's doing things better or doing better things, you know, which is it, you know, we've, we've got the existing, we try to do the existing things better rather than looking at doing better things. You know, there must be a different way of doing this that isn't an award at this level is this amount of time but yeah. we can fiddle with all the different things inside it and but it still it still looks the same and feels the same yeah and, and look um, I, i'm not wanting to to steal too much time here but if i draw draw back on my day job and i think we've had this conversation in the past in chris yeah. uh, i think it was last year at st george's park there are there are constraints that we have in terms of whether it's off quality sqa that we're putting a uh, a qualification onto um, each unit <laughs> provides uh, notional hours that we need to work within. But I think the difference is, is is understanding how best to use those hours to produce a learning program. Mm -hmm. So going away from very simulated chalk and talk classroom based to make it more about um, what happens in the context of the coach's own environment. So using um, uh, new and emergent coach development practices around situated learning. Uh, and applying those practices earlier on uh, in the coaching pathway um, and making it project-based. Um, and the project is based around um, the wants and needs uh, of the coach. So one coach might do skill act, while another coach might do motivational theory, while another coach might do coach-athlete relationship. You completely bespoke it. And that's, that's definitely the route that we want to go down yeah. and are going down with, with our developments now. Is it... Is it um, taking a, uh, a can of petrol and matches to it? No, but is it is it doing the best we can with what we've got? Probably yeah. yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what was interesting from Anna's PhD and subsequent research is you go on a coaching course to learn to coach, regardless of the level, really, you know, regardless of the level in your experience, you know, it's um, looking at things through, you know, the same through things through different lenses, depending on, the level you're working at but the amount of time you actually spend doing coaching the amount of time you actually spend practicing being a 
coach is you know min, you know i don't know what the data what the numbers are i know you probably can remember better than me but it, yeah it was about one or two percent of the time for each coach <laughs> on the on the course was spent coaching you know so i think there's something straight away that we can probably do if you're gonna if you're gonna practice coaching practice coaching right and then weave in that other stuff around it mm. um I, I was just simply gonna ask and i think you've already started to ask that answer that question you know you you used the analogy um petrol and matches what is it that that, that you and anna are, are would set fire to what are the well, i can't i i can't speak for anna um um, but I would just burn the lot down, all of it, the levels, the content, how we define a coach, when we define it, all of it, just start again. I'd just burn the whole lot down because we're just, yeah. Everything, essentially, everything in coaching is arbitrary and very little, bit, very little of it is evidence-informed. So what I mean by that is we've just made it up and we've made stuff up and it's just become normal. Whereas, you know, and you have to ask the question whether that, whether that's the best for our athletes, whether that's best for coach development, I don't know. So I would scrap the whole thing, levels, definitions, all of it, and start again. When, when we were speaking, yeah, when we were speaking before, I thought it was quite funny thinking about num defining the number of hours that you need to be on a course to learn something it seems a bit strange yeah. to me because yeah. clearly if I have an hour and somebody else has an hour and somebody else has an hour you would learn different things or a different amount or you'd have well that was one thing that came from our search like the and from other people before that like the, you would it would depend on you who you are and what you bring to that situation so that seems a bit strange to me first of all the number of hours um and then yeah I suppose what Chris said as well is that there's not loads of evidence that coaching actually has a positive impact on people <laughs> um so I quite like Chris when you present the stuff about um the coach observation instrument case um and like getting coaches to think about what are you actually doing that's helping the athletes and not not actually making things worse and, and why are you doing it a lot of the time you know so it's you know, with the, with the coach behaviour stuff, we talk a lot around, you know, the athlete performance or learning, whatever it is you're trying to do, the environment you're setting up and your behaviour. And are those three things aligned? I, are, you, are, are, you, are you thinking about the environment that you're setting up and the outcomes you want to get from it? You're thinking about the activities or tasks, so the learning space, you know, the type of learning environment you're setting up. And then you're thinking about how you then direct guide facilitate whatever the term is to, to you know are those things aligned and a lot of the times it isn't and it's not you know and the and unfortunately the evidence tells us a lot of the times it isn't you know i coach like this because i think that's the best way to coach well okay so you know would would you change that if you were that no because that's the best way to coach right so we're not going to think about age and stage and we're not going to think about different outcomes no because i you know there's a belief or there's an organizational way of doing this or i feel i need to do this because that's going to keep me in a job or there's a whole range of things or a whole range of pressures you know this, these things don't happen in a vacuum they're not neutral 
Um, and you know, before we even start to get to the space where coaches might be aware of actually what they're doing, uh, and a lot of them aren't, like you know, their, their perception, the perception and reality doesn't align. Um, the self awareness is quite low, so they believe they're doing certain things, but they're not. So, yeah, some real, real question, real question marks around that. Actually, I think in some cases, uh, and I wouldn't torch levels. But, but I'd support people to understand why levels matter um, from a taxonomic perspective around the complexity of sport coaching uh, and the ability to develop your, your skills of reasoning, of critical thought, of reflection. Um, and when, if a framework is constructed appropriately, um, the experiences people will go through from when they enter an educational framework to when they exit at whatever level they do, that all of the experiences feel connected in some way. They're all building towards, um, um, let's say, uh, coaches developing an evidence-informed approach to how they might coach. Yeah. Now, to do, to do that, they need to have critical thought, right? they need to have critical thinking, they need to understand wh where, they're, where they're drawing their evidence from, but also have the skills to be able to compare, contrast um, between those things to arrive at yeah. um, a reasonable yeah. perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I absolutely have no problem with that. But I don't go to medical school, finish the first year and they call me a level one doctor. And then I finish the second year, I'm a level two doctor. And I finish the third year, I'm a level three doctor. And I get to level four and I actually, I'm actually a practice, you know, and they build in all of these levels. You just train for this amount of time and at the end you are what you are. And again, why do you need levels? You know, you can increment, have an incremental set of training over a period of time that starts from that kind of descriptive stuff right the way through to the critical analytical stuff. But we don't have to call it a level. And again, you know, it's... But you know, I, I, don't, it's, I don't disagree with you. Uh, I believe that there's a misappropriation or, or a misinterpretation of um, what levels mean. Um, basic taxonomic principles basic principles of, of curriculum design, curriculum yeah. development, curriculum delivery yeah. are, are not in place. And, and conversely, sport coaches don't go to university to become sport coaches at the end. They do, they do vocational awards that, that sit, sit on, on the side of that. That's wrong. There are some sport coaches who go to university to do that. Um, but the, the levels are not there to be collected. No. Um, I, I, don't, I also don't believe that you need to start at level one or level two if you could, you could, for instance, start at level three uh, in old money, um, if the environmental demands or if your um, intellectual development uh, uh, enables you to do so, you might, you might disagree with me, Chris, but it's certainly my view. Yeah, and, and I don't know. It's, I, can, I can get this. I understand the notion of making coaching as inclusive as possible and making it as accessible as possible to everyone who wants to do it. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're kind of pulling and stretching it, aren't we? We can't do We can't be all things. So we can't, you know, we, it's really difficult for it to be a, a professional vocation or a profession uh, over there. But we want people who qualified as quickly as possible and we want them, you know, that we're kind of pulling and stretching, you know, we need to kind of, you know, decide what it is we need it to be, you know, even, even to the fact of what we call a coach. I mean, the definition now is just so stretched, isn't it? That it's almost, you know, 
is almost meaningless. It has no, the term has no meaning. The noun has no meaning now, um, you know, because it's stretched and pulled and to cover a whole, a whole range of things. You know? I mean, I'm, you know, folk, folks who teach kids sport to kids, folks who get people out and active and all those things, I just wouldn't call them coaches. I would call them something else. And to be a coach, you have to do a period of training, which is this. Once you get to the end of it, you can call yourself a coach. All, all those people are doing that, doing amazing work with young people and all our, in our communities. They're just not coaches, right? They're, we just need to find another, another label for them. And then the, the notion of coach and coaching has a little bit more value and all of those sorts of things. But the fact that, you know, you literally can spend a weekend and then get to call yourself something is part of the problem would in my view but probably not a popular opinion in some circles i was about to thank you for your honesty and uh, directness and in, in these questions i don't know you at all i'm i'm wondering perhaps if that is what you're like day to day <laughs> and it's uh, it's really nice to listen to so thank you um i know we've got a couple of questions lined up but i actually want to jump back to a point that anna made earlier uh, around what one hour might mean for different individuals and I just want to take this opportunity to lean into some of your work that you've done with Chris around biography and its interaction with coach learning and development. I, I know since I've got to know you a bit more Anna over the last year, um, less than a year actually, it, you know, I've benefited in a number of ways from having you in my life, so many of which are general laughter uh, but one of them is certainly I have noticed that I pay much more attention to um, coaches biography and I hope we come on to later as well we've already spoken about um, trying to evaluate and understand um, programs of learning and learning in itself and I just generally feel like I'm in a big deep hole with absolutely no idea what I'm doing and um, but I wonder if you could Anna just speak to some of the some of your work around biography and how and its interaction with coach learning. Yep certainly well good to hear that it's um, struck a chord uh, perhaps in line with your biography <laughs> so um, biography is kind of stolen from Peter Jarvis um, in that it's a uh, kind of amalgamation of all your previous experiences uh, that goes to form your sort of values, beliefs, practices, things that you do as a, as a coach, things that you like to do and know about. So kind of sort of who you are. Um, and then so in my research, as I mentioned, we followed some coaches over a sort of year and a half, compared them with people that weren't taking part in co formal coach education. And then I looked into the data that I got from stimulated recall interviews, which was videoing them in their practice, interviewing them using the video clips to find out about, like to talk through what they were doing and find out about why they were doing those things and where they got perceived to have got that knowledge from or where they learned that from. Um, and then I looked into the processes that were going on there in terms of how did they, how and why did they pick up certain things? Um, and it seemed to be influenced to a great extent by their biography. So other people had mentioned this a little bit before, but had not necessarily explained how that happens. Um, so people were kind of filtering stuff out based on their values, beliefs, existing practices. So if there was something that they came across, say on a course that 
uh, really that they'd well first of all that they they knew about already that would be a match their biography so match their existing knowledge and they were talking about that reinforcing their biography and they would probably just do more of that you know excellent that's good that reinforces I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing and I'm just going to keep doing that or maybe even do it more whereas there was also examples of coaches on a course who came across an, an idea on that course that really contradicted their biography so for example a type of practice that the coach developer was saying um, maybe you, sh you should try this um, or no hang on maybe maybe you shouldn't try this this is not a good thing to to, to try but it was something that they'd really sort of tied a lot of their experiences to you know that's a great practice I love doing that one the players that I coach really benefit from that and they get better at what it is I'm trying to get them to get better at through that practice so I'm just going to reject what he's just said to the coach developer I'm just going to stick to what I know and stick to my biography so they're they remain unchanged um, and then there was kind of a, a middle ground between those two when coaches were coming across ideas or concepts that um, could maybe fit in with their biography so it wasn't something they already knew about or already did before but they could sort of sort of fitted in and so it had to get past that stage before they would actually be willing to try something out um, and there, there was also the kind of contextual level so other other researchers had talked about um, biography before or they talked about how individuals kind of filter out stuff before um, Chris being one of them but um, people hadn't really um, had the con contextual level in there as well so once something kind of got through that individual biography filter, it also had to get through the contextual level filter. So you could really like a new idea that you come across and think that you want to try it, but it might might just not seem to suit your context that you're working in. Or, you know, you might have you might have a boss that doesn't allow you to sort of try different things, or it might just not be relevant to the, the group that you're coaching. So it had to get past that contextual level filter as well before they would even try something out and go through a kind of reflective conversation of um, experimentation, adapting, um, tweaking, etc., and going again. So that kind of filter process was the main sort of thing that came out of my PhD and it helps to explain why if you and me, Laurie, were to go on the same course, we'd probably learn different things from it because we're different people, and we've got different backgrounds, different values, beliefs um, and experiences. I, thank you, Anna. And I have a follow-up question there that, that sits at a really practical level. I know you wear a number of different hats. How has your work informed your workflow? So how has your research informed your workflow as a coach developer? I don't have any hats on. <laughs> and I don't know what workflow is. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> Um, but I have I have designed something recently that is um, with some women coaches at uh, a local rugby club to me and we've been spending the past sort of year or so um, kind of going through the stages of that of that grounded theory um, so the like using the evidence um, so the evidence tells us that coaches learn in these sort of roughly three kind of stages there's ways in that, in that process and so I designed something that kind of takes people through those processes and I would teach them a little bit about um, what each of those are and then we would sort of use those use that as a structure really to try and guide them through it which has been yeah it's been fun it's been kind of like a pilot type program but 
I know that Chris has mentioned that he's tried to do similar in that actually using that that process the grounded theory and telling people to or asking people to kind of identify things that could go in those different boxes so can you think of a time where you've um, come across something that you just reinforced what you knew and then just thought well that means I should do more of it can you think of a time where you've come across something that you've really disagreed with and just kind of rejected it without even thinking through why why do I not agree with that why do I think that's not worth trying um, and so on does that answer your question yeah I'm, I'm keen to, to build on that a wee bit and bring it back to probably one of our original um, planned questions and given Anna, you've you've um, provided a contribution into uh, into our knowledge of uh, knowledge in uh, coach learning, um, and cited in in your most recent paper with uh, Chris uh, and Nicola Clark. Um, there, there's a there's a quote by Williams and Bush in 2019 around there being a lack of theorising in or on coach learning. So, given we know some things, what is it that we um, need to learn in the future? about coach learning is that one for me or for chris <laughs> he's a professor you, he gets both. paid enough to answer questions like that <laughs> <For you both. laughs> i think chris is just hasn't he? i think um so like one thing you've written about recently is all these kind of like new learner centered supposedly approaches to coach education and like different different new ways people that are sort of doing it seem to suggest it we've moved on and we've got sort of new ways of doing things but we don't have any evidence that they work either so i suppose that maybe that's the next logical step do you need any help with this anna <laughs> i think i think we're a really i mean just to to your point laurie about biography i think it was Show my age here. So Dan, Dan Gould in 1996 did some stuff. He had access to the US Olympic, like the coaches for the US Olympic team. And I think he did a series of studies where he basically asked them kind of a bit of a SWOT analysis at the end of Olympic cycles. And one of the things that he kept asking the coaches is about, you know, wh where do you learn? What are you learning from? Where do you learn most from? And they kept saying from our experience, <laughs> Know, from the 90s onwards from our experience and it's something that I certainly picked up on and again you know the, the low impact nature of courses you know if you go on a two-day course versus five or ten or twelve years coaching you know you get a sense that you're going to get from that experience and I think you know, Anna's really done a nice job of unpicking some of that but I think it, is, it surprises me a little bit that we went so long without kind of without really appreciating how dominant those things are. So your previous experience is what you've learned to understand what that works and um, your beliefs about coaching and how those have grown. You know, you know, um, I, I almost think that sometimes for, formal coach education is a bit like trying to shoot an elephant with a pea shooter sometimes you know you've got this huge elephant you know which is people's experience and their beliefs that's founded on all of these things and you're there with a pea shooter with a little bit of formal coach education trying to knock the elephant over which is never ever going to happen so and, and it surprises me that it's taken us this long to kind of really appreciate that and interestingly talking about the original UKCC part of the original UKCC was to do some biographic you know before people arrive on the course 
and the first morning we should explore some of where they've come from and again that's something that you know other than people fill in a bit on the form i'm not sure that's ever really happened um as as well as it as well as it could do but that's you know it's a that, that is an incredibly powerful filter for everything that we're trying to do and you know so as anna said what i try to do is in my work is for people try to get people to understand that they have this filter in the first place you know you have a filter here so everything i'm saying to you is going through the filter and you're making a decision whether you like it or not whether you like me or not all of these things are happening and it's almost trying to encourage that kind of meta you know to step away from that and just think about this you know i don't want you to agree or disagree but just acknowledge the fact that that these processes are happening um which i think is a really you know really important really important first step but in, in terms of and what's what is interesting and i've got another phd student who recently finished and he had a, he's had a darren watts who's had a paper published recently and i've got another one in process and again even with coach developers that that filter it applies to coach developers too so we you know he's looked at groups of coach developers and their experiences through sport and coaching and the way that they talk about the courses that then they're asked to deliver or the, the way that they support their coaches is always through that the filter of that experience their judgments about whether it's good or bad what they do whether whether they think that what they're being asked to do is right or wrong is always through that filter always and it's really you know really really fascinating but in terms of in terms of learning i think what's an we're at an interesting moment you and that's absolutely right the evidence for many claims not much evidence i think holds for quite a lot of things actually that are promoted um but what interests me in this space is the kind of the separation between the kind of the epistemological explanation so what why is this happening why why does this happen versus the the kind of the method so we've got people who have you know advocate particular methods of either delivering coaching or de delivering coach education there's a method of it and and understanding the effects of that but also if we say that that works why does it work so that kind of separation of theory and method and i think that's an interesting space you know for the researcher for us to start thinking about so not only we're, we're applying this method but if it works why what's the mechanism why are we arguing that it works and again i think that's really interesting with anna's work that she's starting to unpick some of these things so there's two people well there's four of us we're all on the same course we're all getting deli delivered the same material relatively speaking against a curriculum but we all end up with different outcomes so but what's the mechanism for that why is that happening so i think those are really interesting questions as far as you know moving moving the moving the area forward thanks guys um, uh, before um before we, we jumped on this recording i shared in um, a little bit of an extract from from my phd proposal with with anna and because the, the the paper that that you guys shared, which I hope we do get, we do actually get onto, sparked a little bit in me around um, authorities and the role of authorities in uh, establishing knowledge of and knowledge in coaching. And I, I suppose it's just how often do those authorities, be those coach educators, coach developers, go unquestioned, and we take take things by and large on on face value, don't question and then and then apply in in context. And I'm drawn back to, to, to a book that's about to be released by Andy Norman called Mental Immunity, which we might also call epistemic vigilance, which I think is what you're, you're getting at there. Chris, a wee bit is just, uh, and again, aligned to, to Anna's notion of filters. 
so not only biography but or conceptions of or concepts of or models of or models in coaching um, how sophisticated they become how they act also as a filter uh, within coach education because we don't always have to take everything in coach education on face value as well I don't know how often we've ever seen a candidate openly challenge a coach educator on course because they disagree with what's being what's being said is that a fair fair point to make well I don't think they're they're in a position to do that are they I mean, I, I certainly with with Anna's research and the projects that we were on with there, I I certainly saw some people try to do that, <laughs> and then suffer the consequences for it. It didn't go too well for them. Oh no, it doesn't. You know, and it's rhetorical. You know, you can ask us anything you want. We're here to be challenged. Here comes a question. Here comes a challenge, and the person gets absolutely slam dunked. And it's like, okay, so that was just rhetoric. You didn't actually want them to challenge you at all, did you? Um, yeah. So in our experiences it it doesn't go down well would be my feeling why oh why i guess it's um i suppose it's whether you position yourself as it an authority or in authority right <laughs> and if you're if you're running a course you're typically in authority you're in authority and it can feel like a challenge um and and not all challenges and not all questions are equal and valid and some deserve to be slammed down but you get you get some people who ask genuine questions around you know as i said earlier a lot of the stuff is arbitrary there is no no, it's not like gravity. There aren't universal truths in coaching, right? It's just there's a lot of arbitrary stuff here and it's quite rightly out for challenge. Um and I and I just guess and again, you know, the second ever paper I wrote in two thousand and three, I made the argument that coaching doesn't really have a critical tradition, i.e. we don't like we don't like debate and discussion with each other. We don't we don't like challenging, we have no tradition of it. And, you know, again that's part of it, isn't it? You know. You, you do what you're told you listen and you and you follow instructions and that's kind of you know that's kind of how we are and that's how we've how we've typically been so I, I you know it doesn't surprise me that some some folks don't like it and deal with it in in that way and we're venturing into docility here aren't we um a, a, wee, a wee bit just a little bit I mean, yeah, you've, got, you've nudged the door open, haven't you? I mean, I mean, ultimately, it is about there is it is about power. You know, there's all there's always a there's always power relationships in here, and it's you know, and, and in the paper that we've recently published, it's it's a Foucauldian notion of power in that it's not a zero sum game. It's not a pie that's sliced up and divided amongst people. Power just exists in the context and flows in discourses and those sorts of things, and it isn't particularly it isn't held by any any one person or groups people just kind of you know I, I use the surfing analogy they kind of surf the discourses and position themselves in in positions of authority and expertise rather than actually possess because the power just flows and what is interesting is you know you can you can never the power never you know it's, it's a bit like en you know energy it just changes forms so if you if you take that definition of power you know, we've got a, trad a traditional didactic, I tell you what to do, 
you copy me, you pass. So that it's very, it's very obvious and open where the power relationship is and how it works. Whereas now if we, if we go along with the discourses around, you know, being learner centered and, um, giving people autonomy, there, there's still a, there's still a relationship between the developer and the, the learner, right? There's still a power relationship. So the power's here, here somewhere. It's just, just gone. It's just been reformulated into something else. And, you know, Foucault talks about us becoming, being modern and we, you know, and power doesn't go away. It just gets reconfigured into different forms. So the, the tutor's still in charge, really. But the, the way that the power moves is just reconfigured and, and in a different shape and in a different form. Um, something the, more dialogic? Yeah, possibly. Um, so, you know, and, and again, his work talks about, well, we used to, you know, we used to physically beat people, but now we don't physically beat them. You know, the, the way that we control people just has become... You know, the, the power is still there. It's just been disguised and moved into different forms. It's not as overt and as obvious. And if we think about that analog the same, the, the, that analogy, the, the same is in coach development, right? Or in coach education. So you can think about a very didactic, tutor-led space. You know, there is, a, there is a power relationship between the learner and the tutor. And regardless of how we set up the room and, you know, that relationship remains as much as we, you know, but the, but the power has been reconfigured somehow. So it hasn't gone away. It's just been reconfigured. And, and how do we do that? Well, we do that through discourses. So we might do it through, um, and again, very often this is, you know, un, unintended consequence It's unintended. <laughs> again, it's, you know, because I don't, I'm not, I'm not holding onto the power. I'm not wielding it in any way, but I'm looking to construct a, construct an environment but the power still flows through it so you know how i how i configure an environment um you know basically foucault said what, what once you get people to control themselves that's the ultimate aim so self-surveillance self-control is is where you're going for so you know the classic being the panopticon you know the classic panopticon bentham's prison you don't know whether you're being watched or not so you behave so this notion that you basically control yourself, you behave and you don't need overt means of control. And you can think a little bit about that in terms of coach development, which seems a bit of a leap the way I'm talking about it, doesn't it? But, um, you know, who, who's an, who's an expert who can speak, you know, what does, what does a good learner look like? What are the things that we can talk about and what are the things that we can't? So all of those things reflect very subtle aspects of power. And we might be getting abstract here, but, but coaches self-controlling, but we don't necessarily know if those the thresholds and boundaries that exist within their framework are actually their own or constructed by somebody else. Through. Yeah, well, very often they'll be, you know, in, in the paper that we've recently published, that those boundaries were very clearly set by the organisation. You, know, you know, they were very clearly set around, you know, what, what, what does it mean to be a professional in this space? Well, a professional talks about these things, talks about them in this way, um, thinks about learning in this way, doesn't, doesn't challenge <laughs> or only challenges in certain, you know, so it's all, it's all very, and if you don't do that, you're unprofessional, you're, a, you know, you're not a, um, you're not the right type of learner or you're a problem 
you're a problem learner. This person is always put, you know, objecting to stuff. They're, they're a problem. Um, and that's, that's a subtle working of power, isn't it? Ultimately. Well, the, thing, the thing about the reflective diaries and um, the person who reviewed the reflective diaries having the power to kick people off the course was like quite a stark kind of example. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, you know, you're very, you're very careful what you write in it, aren't you? You're, you're very careful what you write and you monitor and you know you should be doing these things. So, um, you know, that's the that's the operation of power in that environment. Yeah, I, I was um, really struck reading that paper by uh, it, when it was written. Coaches were silenced by the dominant discourse, and you spoke earlier of someone coming into environment and being the authoritarian figure and having the power. And it's not necessarily that that, that individual wants that or is or thinks that's best but of course I think what's being discussed is that they are an individual within norms within sports and there's expectations that might be set upon them to behave in a certain way so a question I wanted to ask was um, what would you like to hear more of within uh, the discourse uh, or yeah what would you like to hear more of in the discourse within and surrounding coach learning um, and how can we support that at a systems level? I mean, I think what was interesting, um, I mean, th this was a, this was a high, high performance space. So what was interesting is that the, co the coaches on the programme were all really, I mean, really experienced and really successful. And this was a, you know, this was a beyond, le beyond levels type course. This is, good, you know, really about their, systemic change for their organizations and then being kind of figureheads and what was you know we talked about this experiential learning and what was what was interesting for me was the move to and again it wasn't deliberate so this move to challenge what is what is valuable experience in the space so if i if i go into a room with all of these world record holding olympic coaching team winning coaches and I start talking about coaching experience then suddenly you know my social and cultural capital is quite low because I don't have any of that really but if I can change the narrative about well actually we're going to go to Google and we're going to go to look at armed police training and we're going to reconceptualize what experience and experiential learning looks like suddenly I kind of undermine them but I change the dynamic in the room suddenly then you know if, if I take an Olympic rowing coach who's never been in the military or the police and I take them to the armed police training centre, they're suddenly a novice and the dynamic changes, right? So subtly, <laughs> I've changed the dynamic in the space, whereas my feeling is we should absolutely, you know, expertise is the main specific if we want to develop coaches we need to talk about if, if we want to develop rowing coaches we need to talk about rowing coaching and looking at and we need to look at rowing coaching so for me it's all very shiny and spangly and sparkly to take people out of their context and say oh we can go to all of these other high performance environments but the the subtlety is it changes the dynamic and the learning and in fact you're dropping someone who's an who is an expert in their sport and you're making them a complete novice, which again changes the type of learning that they're getting. You know, you, they're not, they're not at the same, you know, they're not at the same level as, you know, 
you're expecting an expert expert dialogue in that space but you've taken one expert and turned them into a novice because they know nothing about the space in which they're in and they're floundering a little bit and they're being asked to do stuff and they're being judged and all of these things so you're changing the dynamics so for me you know systemically i think it's about keeping it keeping it domain specific and and you know keeping it about coaching and also not you know not framing and judge not framing and judging people you know there there is no right or wrong here you know what was very interesting from that research was you know we want you to be reflective we want you to be open and honest and say what you like but people said stuff said yeah but that's not what we want you to say we want you to say this it's like well hang on a minute and then straight away this person's going away saying well i know i can't say that so i need to say this and again, we're shaping subjectivity into something that's a norm or something's expected. So it's just keep, keep it specific, keep it about the job that they're doing and allow people to be, don't be judgmental really. Don't try to compartmentalize and, fr- and control people's reflections and thoughts about stuff. You know, there's re- you know, there's really good evidence around self-regulation in learning i thinking about my own learning engaging in planning my own learning you know it's a really powerful tool but if we're starting to tell people how to do it and what they should write then we're completely undermining it so that kind of domain specific learning about coaching in your environment or similar but also self-regulation those two things are really powerful for learners at any level and that's something systemically that I would definitely be looking to support. Thank you, Chris. I wonder if this is a, a lead into perhaps offer Anna the opportunity to speak about the book chapter that you're writing with Chris on coaching expertise. Would you be happy to do that? I feel like we've been off. We haven't really, uh, Chris and I haven't really had a chance to speak too much about it, but um, I think it is interesting, Chris, and the, the expertise was something that I started to look at um, when I started my PhD 10 years ago. Um, I spent a while looking at yeah, coaching expertise and expert performance approach and then sort of moved away from it um, just because it's so hard to, well, it, you can't, it's so hard to define because it's, yeah, <laughs> in the past people sort of tend to think of it as like a destination, you know, you're an expert or you're not. Um, and then they've taken their research back from that and looked at how do you become an expert and put it very much into sort of linear stages and I kind of through reading and thinking about it a bit more deeply which is what you do in a PhD um, realized that wasn't really kind of that realistic I thought to what it's like actually learning to coach so I sort of moved away from it but now I've come back around and there's some more recent um, kind of thoughts on adaptive expertise um and i guess the chapter starts to look into that a little bit more but chris is probably better at speaking about it than me because he's done the he i did i did a draft i sent him some stuff and uh sent it sent it back to chris and he reminded me why he's a professor <laughs> by um sending me back his draft which was uh way better than the work that i'd done on it so <laughs> i just rejigged it and that's all i did took your material and re reframed it i mean we were sp- Again, I, I wouldn't say necessarily expertise is an area that I'm an expert in, but we just got asked to write that, you know, about the development of expertise because that's the tone of the book, really. Um, but there, it, 
I mean, there, there is some working coaching around um, adaptive expertise, as in non-procedural, you know, just accumulate lots of knowledge and be really good at reproducing a procedure, you know, that I playing chess to a high level procedural type expertise versus um, building on that, but also having being having metacognitive skills, being reflective, being able to problem solve. You know, that, that's an interesting area. And again, it's it's a bit cognitive psychology, isn't it? Um, which isn't my space necessarily. But the, 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 again, the notions of what people are saying around this, around being able to create knowledge objects, have metacognitive processes and decision-making that you can pick up and put into different, you know, that transfer into different con into different contexts sounds pretty good and sound, you know, that's what we want coaches to do. So um, that's where we're at. And I was actually working on that chapter this afternoon, Anna. So um, trying to get it finished. It's horribly late, but hey, that's another discussion, isn't it? Linking, um, linking the development of expertise back with coach education. Do you think that the levels that you are setting fire to, Chris? Do you think that the levels contribute towards um, the idea of expertise being um, absolute, like an end point? I'm really reluctant to, to start drawing lines <laughs> and say, right, you start here and end it. I'm just reluctant to do it. Although inevitably that's what, you know, it's, I'm trying to think of a metaphor that isn't that. And I hate using the word journey because that's just so cliche, isn't it? Um, but yeah, you know, what we what we're striving. There may there may be level of practitioner where having really good underpinning knowledge and being really procedural is perfect. But there may be levels of practitioner where we want them to be a bit more than that. I.e., problem solve, be creative, deal with ambiguity you know the swampy lowlands of practice as donald Schoen would call it being able to deal with that stuff so we need that too don't we so you know uh, yeah so i'm gonna i'm not gonna contradict myself so i'm saying that the the knowledgeable proceduralist is just not just not yet a coach <laughs> there's something else Whereas the person who is more adaptive and that, that's the coach, that's the, you know, that's the coach. Um, so yes, there's a kind of a progression. I'm going I'm, to take it back to the, what we talked about earlier on around levels and the intention of levels around um, dealing with complexity and maybe drawing on what you're talking about in terms of the procedure list and developing knowledge of, um, and I'm going to draw into Dylan Williams work especially the work that he's done on, on the national curriculum and he talks explicitly around disciplinary habits of mind which is being able to make connections across the curriculum and that's what we're talking about here isn't it so um having a having a, knowing enough about enough to be able to draw connections between uh, different knowledge and types of knowledge to yeah. arrive at a point where we're where, um being creative in our in our solutions that we're that we're putting in through our coaching practice does that does that make sense yeah, and it's a bit like, uh, I can never pronounce the name right, but it's Berater. Is it Berater? Berater? He writes a lot about that similar stuff around, you know, knowledge, knowledge in context, situated knowledge, and then knowledge objects that you're able to take and, 
you know, and giving people skills to make connections between, you know, how different things are connected together. Um, but again, it's th those are eminently, you know, that's something you learn to do. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Beretta, again, this is going to be a little bit of a cul-de-sac. A, a, a cul I was reading some of his work and he was talking about that kind of people who kind of that syllogistic logic, that way of thinking and how people who'd been through formal education and training are able to make those connections better than people who didn't. And he was talking about an example of um, either in North America or somewhere like that, taking, taking two groups of people, some who'd been through a really a formal period of training and more indigenous people who hadn't essentially talking about, okay, so we know that above the snow line, all bears are white. And this town is above the snow line. So what colour are the bears? And the people who had been through a formal education could make the connection and say, well, it's, they're probably going to be white because that's where the town is, where the, those who hadn't gone, well, I've never been to that town and you'd probably need to ask the people who were there whether, whether the, what colour the bears are. So they couldn't make the connections because they've never really been taught to think that way. So there are ways of thinking that we can teach people to do. And it's how, and as you say, it's how we connect the different parts and problem solve and all those things. But not, knowledge, of course, is the key to that. It all starts from 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 build, building a knowledge base. I, I really, uh, I suppose. Sorry, Derek. Really quickly, I really like. I, I mention it quite a lot. Dilly Fung's is it Dilly Fun? A connected curriculum for higher education. There's lots of just brilliant stuff in there that I really like that speaks to that. Um, making those connections. Derek, go for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just going to, I'm going back to um, knowledge being being key, um, but the way in which that knowledge is, is created, I think uh, is important to, to, to discuss here as well. And I know that I'm drifting into something uh, cognitive, which you may not, may not like, Chris, but... Um, and I'm, and I'm going to talk to, again, a quote that you've privileged within the, within the paper, which is coach development practices are ideological and reproduce current coaching practices as opposed to challenging them. I, I really love a term that I've heard from you in several, several occasions, which is spitting in people's soup. And what we're talking about there is disjuncture. So if we, if we take dispensing knowledge on one side and disjuncture to create space where knowledge can emerge on the other, what, what role does disjuncture have? Yeah, and why don't we see enough of it in coach education, do you believe? Great question. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's quite a, quite a complicated question. <laughs> um, doesn't uh, Donald Bjork talk about desirable difficulty? Uh, you need to be uncomfortable enough, right, for it to... I mean, what's, what's interesting is I'm doing, doing some work outside of coaching now uh, outside of sport i should say and trying to trying to get people to understand in a, in a particularly culturally driven environment it's really challenging and i'm working with their tra their trainers and trying to support an organization to develop a new way of training and working with really experienced trainers and it's really it's been really difficult um, so basically, I have no social and cultural capital in this space. The, pr the professor title don't care. 
or you don't care because you've not done this job and you're not in this space so you don't get it okay fine so it's been really really difficult to try and get the message across and and challenging and painful actually and some of the toughest stuff i've done in recent times but what 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 you've tried to do and i'm always mindful of you know this idea of desirable difficulty so i've tried to ground everything the trainers do in training so every session starts with them delivering some training and then me in trying to increase the level of complexity of the training until i get to the point where they say yeah i don't understand this i don't know i don't know how to do this i don't have the un and it's like right so you need to know this now right and they all go yes so now i can tell you it whereas if i'd started the day saying right ladies and gents you need to know this i'll just to get you know it had been rotten fruit and vegetables being thrown at me and you don't know what you're talking about so it's for me i think it's that incre that increasing level of complexity until the person reaches that you know they're tapping it's a tapping out moment saying okay I, I can't this is just too much now i'm not overwhelmed but i'm reaching the point where you know I just don't know what I don't know what to do. I hold my hands up. I don't know what to do next. And whether whether that's this juncture, I, I guess that's sp spitting in people's soup, but gradually <laughs> dribbling people's soup. <laughs> yeah, rather than doing it over time, because you know, because at the same time, you want to take you know, I I know that I want to take I need to take this group this group of people with me, and I need to develop this the trust and all of those things. So I can't be as perhaps outspoken as and challenging and as soup spitting as I might be with sport coaches where, you know, it's a different context and I'm a, a different person in that environment. So I guess it's kind of edging forward, making stuff, just, just adding the challenge, adding the layers, increasingly complex, increasing complexity until we, until no, so it's not me that decides when that is. It's them, and they get to the point and and say, "Okay, right, I can't. I now don't understand this. I need I need something new here. Can you can you help me with it?" It's like, "Great, yes, I can." Which they would also need some form of self regulation um, to be able to do. Well, they physically can't do it, Anna. They, I'm asking them to do something, and they reach a point. And to be honest, you know, they they have a go. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, this doesn't, this isn't working. I haven't, I can't do it. I don't know. I don't know how to do this now. Can, can you help me? Which are magical words, right? From people. Yeah, I was going to bring it back to biography as I would have, as I, as I would do in that, yeah, you would have the, you don't want it to be so different from their biography that they can just reject it. Um, but then you don't want it to be so similar to their biography that it's something that they, they just reinforce what they already know. Um, but then in the research that sort of led to that biography stuff in coach education, there was also the coach developer or the person that's trying to bring about the learning can help too, in that they would put across things that were disjunctive. Is that, is that even a word? You know, that would cause disjuncture um, and then just just leave it there so we've we've chris we've talked about it before it was being like a grenade like the, the coach of the would just chuck a grenade into the room and you could see everyone almost physically like recoiling from how much it um kind of contradicted what they 
like really bought into what they really believed in and then just sort of left them to deal with the chaos and the, the wreckage um, rather than actually helping them to yeah make sense of it or kind of I suppose if you're Derek you wanted to put cognitive kind of words in it like restructuring like assimilating that into into your biography so um, Jarvis talks about the disjuncture being a moment of potential for learning um, so that kind of feeling of uncomfortableness and um, bit bit of confusion that's the that's the opportunity for the person that's helping you to yeah to change your biography to then become more harmonious as peter jarvis would, would talk about so then you change your biography and you're a changed person and um, but if you don't have that disjuncture then you wouldn't change your biography because you wouldn't um you wouldn't kind of feel uncomfortable enough to go about changing it yeah, I think what's interesting for me as well, working outside of sport, is um, not just not just creating that moment, but also helping the learner make the connections so they understand how things fit together and they understand kind of the consequences of that, if that makes sense. So again we could we could sit and tell people and i can show videos and i can do all that and i can do all of these things but again it's quite a personal thing where someone goes right oh i understand where that now i understand where now i have to do this and i understand how that fits to that which will lead to this i because because i'm because i'm in that moment and i'm doing it and i think learners have to make those connections for themselves and this is you know that's something that that I read in that, that comes from the TGFU literature actually around at what, you know at what point do you introduce different things and at what level and it's and it's making sure the learners can make they need to make the connections they need to make the connections you can't make the connections for them and and you know call it disjuncture or whatever you want to whatever you want to call it that's a really important moment for the for them to make the connections, facilitated, guided, or whatever is required for that person. But what's also interesting is it's not a homogenous thing. So some people need, you know, the, the level at which people go, yeah, I need help with this is, is very, will be very different. And again, will depend, as Anna said, on their background and on their beliefs. And, you know, it's been interesting again, just how, how people will cling to what they believe even when it's all the wheels are coming up, you know, it's a dustbin fire. Let's face it. What I'm looking at in front of me in this session is a bin fire and they're going, yeah, but I still believe what I'm doing is right. And it's like, okay, you know, I, it's, it's interesting and how variable that could be with around you know, allegedly homogenous groups of coaches or trainers, but the, you know, how much people are prepared to cling on to stuff is just really fascinating yeah confirmation bias and disconfirmation biases or my side bias is a very scary scary thing indeed um, and i think also i think i'm, I'm going to draw on misero as well what we were just talking about in terms of disjuncture uh, disorientating dilemmas which i think is a very uh, very apt um, term indeed and I'm, I'm thinking even back to perry back in the 60s and 70s and he talked explicitly around um, creating dissonance within within the curriculum um, creating shades of gray um, uh, gaps for people to fall into to recognize that you know these are uh, there's something wrong here um, uh, this doesn't feel right and begin to question um, whether or not the knowledge that's being presented to them is is true 
Um, and, and again, if we think about the levels of sophistication that sit behind coach education, in my experience, having worked in coach education for 12 years now, it's very limited in, in, in terms of my experience of things that are that sophisticated, but they're not. They're not difficult things to do. Um, is that perhaps what the future of coach education could and should look like? I wanted to just briefly lean in some of the work that you and I do, Derek, um, uh, in and around what you were discussing there, Chris, and creating that like need, uh, creating that demand by the learner. So I actually really need this. And uh, so Derek's doing some coach development work and we have a conversation and he's working with a coach and he sees uh, what he thinks is a need with that coach in terms of their practice. And he um, creates some invite, well, has discussion, um, reflects on, on moments with that coach that allows them to see that this is a need and this is a developmental area that they might like to address um, together. It's collaborative. I'm not really explaining this very well. Um, and then as the designer of that a, a program, so I'm also overseeing these coaches. So we have individuals working with coach developers and then we have a broad program supporting these coaches as well. Well, then I might try to support uh, a learning opportunity that meets the needs of those coaches and my hope is that when that, that opportunity is presented to that coach they already have that perceived need and therefore might engage with it um, uh, more effectively but of course within sports different sports what I notice is that, and I think in your paper you touch on this there are there's like currency so opportunities arise and and i know i you know here's some opportunities i've tried to make it as informed as possible and i've tried as best i can to gather as much information about the needs of the the coaches and the athletes that they're working with and the system that they're within and i try to use that gather as much data triangulate it and use that to inform the programs of learning that i'm you know kind of putting out there and I know that there will be certain things that is going to get absolute, you know, 100% uptake because that's a currency that they exchange in terms of what's of value, what is perceived to be of value for us to know or be able to do within this particular sport. And there'll be others that will be much more challenging and will get less uptake. And I think that's where coach developers can be really supportive and effective in working in collaboration with coaches to try and create those, those needs with the learners. Sorry, that was um, that was long, but um, yeah, wanted to say that. <laughs> I think you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, it's I don't know whether it's I, I, I think I think Laurie, it's been helpful for me to step away from sport <laughs> and working up and working in other environments where where I have zero credibility really. And you and you essentially have to ground everything in the task or the or scenario or game or whatever whatever language you want to use. So it's it's and then it and then it pushes the ownership of that and the problem identification comes either from the individual or their peers or you know, you know try, trying to you know I. I Watching you work, uh, you know, with in, in, as a coach developer, you watch somebody working and you say, okay, I can see some stuff here that I think would be really beneficial for this person. But if I just say that to them, I've got no idea how it's going to land. So, so they need, they have to own that. Yeah. 
but how I own that is that I create an I create a task or an, env- an environment that brings that out that kind of exposes it and it's not quite as, as nasty as throwing a hand grenade in but it it, it, it evolves it's task based essentially it evolves from what they're trying to do and they suddenly go okay I've hit a I've hit a stumbling block or a roadblock here and I need some help with it and hopefully that's the moment when they realize what it what it is they need and the help that they want and and again hopefully you're then pushing against an open door aren't you rather than rather than to try and you know I've been in rooms with groups of coaches where I could be selling 10 pound notes for a fiver and none of them would have bought them no just because because you know I'm trying to say you need and it's like why do we need this I you know a I don't need it or b I'm really good at that already (laughs) or I already do this I'm really good at it already or I just don't see the point you know but yeah whereas if I flip it around and say okay let's get you working let's get you coaching let's get you there and I'll start pulling the strings a little bit and it's like oh right okay we, we seem to have hit a problem here yeah I, I don't really know how to do this or this is something that uh, I did or and even better if you've got, you've got it on video and playing it back saying oh I didn't really realize that was happening oh right okay so there's something that perhaps we might want to work on then yeah yeah I think it probably is great now we're now we can start talking in a productive fashion can't we quick fire question to finish um, and thank you so much both of you for your contributions uh, in terms of recommendations that you would make in the current system that we are all operating in what, what would your recommendations be for the design delivery and evaluation of programs of learning for coaches I think I got asked that question in my PhD viva <laughs> I don't doesn't feel very quick fire that does it no <laughs> you got a quick fire one <laughs> i would i would say for just a just a general point um like yeah start with biography so um find out who who the coaches are and what they do why what experiences they've had uh yeah i think some kind of alignment for me making sure all of the bits of it align and they're not pulling and tugging against each other, I think is really important. And as I say, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but a lesson for me over the last year or so is definitely being working out ways to, for the learners to identify the problems that they have or the areas. Now that, that's not to say that it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's sneaky. We kind of, we, we kind of know, you know, so if we understand what, you know, we, we have a, we have a role and we have a level. We have, we, we, at the end of this program, we know that people need to know this. We know, we know that they need to understand this. We know that we, they need to be able to do that. We've worked out their biography. We've seen them working and we can see the gaps. We can see the gaps for development. It's then thinking about how do I get them to recognize that need rather than me just ramming it down their throat that they need it. So that for me, I think is, that for me, I think is really, really important. And, and, and you do that by grounding it in practice, basically. So it isn't sitting in a classroom and looking at PowerPoints. It's, it's actually doing stuff and working out these problems and letting the problems come up and manipulating that. So I think those two, those things would be important for me. Thank you. So helping them to understand their biography. <laughs> well, yeah. 
yeah, and it's just well, and arguably the gaps in it, Anna, because you know, generally our experiences are uneven and uncritical, aren't they? <laughs> so it's understanding where where you know what my strengths are and what what my what my weaknesses are, where there are gaps, and making me have a good honest look at all of that, and making me have an assessment of it, really. Interestingly, bring it back to yesterday, Laurie and I are colleagues on the development of a, of a new award specifically for coaching in high-performance environments. Um, so it's the postgraduate level award. And we got bogged down in philosophy, didn't we? <laughs> and coaching philosophy. Um, I'm sitting here kicking myself going, why didn't we start with biography? <laughs> uh, uh, um, in terms of developing that, that, that first outcome. In, in, in fact, the unit's called Knowing Yourself. So I'm now kicking myself going, right, next meeting we've got. Agenda item number one, how do we integrate biography into a qualification? What's interesting is that, um, so I've been doing some, so we we, we launched a, a, an essence, strength and conditioning master's program and I run the coaching module on it. And, I, and it's, I've run it two through twice now. The first run through, um, I tr- uh, they are coaches, but they're not coaches. Okay, so they're involved in coaching, but their strength and conditioning, their background, their biographies, their education is very, very different to a lot of coaches. So I foolishly, the first run through started with coaching philosophy. I did actually start with, and, and part of it is your values and beliefs and where you, and it was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. Um, you know, um, so this time around, I was, did it a little differently and I started with, coaching practice so the very first thing we did is talked about coach behavior and we filmed them and got them to film each other and get some objective you know let okay coach this and we'll get you filmed and we'll start looking at it and we'll talk about different ways we can look at look at the way that you coach and after a couple of weeks of that thinking about coach behavior and practice design then we did some stuff on coaching philosophy okay so we've got the what and we're trying to look at coaching sessions. Now we're going to ask the question about, well, what, why, why, why like that? Where, where does that come from? And what does that mean? And how does that link? And it worked so much better. <laughs> so again, you know, I would day one, hour one, you know, once you've, once you've done the health and safety brief, get people coaching. I don't care who they are. Just get them, get them doing some coaching, get some, get some some coaching practice and then everything else grows out of it the gaps the belief you know why you know you kind of you reverse it you know reverse practice into some of these other areas which are really abstract and difficult to do they're important but difficult to do from the get-go with some groups and um and it worked a lot better but yeah it was a yeah i thought i'll I'll do values and beliefs and philosophy in that first and ah disaster absolute disaster yeah we have it uh, it's difficult when the students i teach because they don't actually they're not uh, yeah they don't have much coaching experience at all so then where do you start (laughs) Uh, it's almost like a blank slate but not because obviously as you yeah as you've written about before the sort of apprenticeship of observation and they have preconceived ideas of what a coach should look like and what they should do or not do but 
Well, you probably you probably need to insert it somewhere else, somewhere, don't you? So they need to cover that. It needs to be there, but they need there needs to be some you know needs to have some you need to have something to talk about, right? Yeah. Rather than it be abstract. Yeah, it'd be nice if they could talk about it as well, rather than me just talking about it all the time. To a blank screen. <laughs> cool. Well, I guess uh, I guess that leaves us to to wrap up. Laurie, do you think so? Yeah, loved it. Thank you. That was, yeah, that was um, that was awesome. One to um, to afford Anna the opportunity to speak about her work on the podcast, which you rarely do. Largely, your interactions are, are quips or uh, at me, uh, <laughs> which which I do quite enjoy. Um, but equally, it was, it was great to hear from you uh, as well. Chris, uh, we've had quite a lot of people from a from a psychological background on the podcast before talking about coaching. It's great to have somebody with a bit more of a sociological background to do so. Um, yeah, we yeah, it was good. I think we could probably talk about that a little bit more. We kind of danced around it a little bit, didn't we? Just leaves room for a for a part two, Chris. That's all we do. <laughs> yeah. We didn't actually ask about the yeah the discourse of the coaching discourse, <laughs> uh, as in no, I know. Who gets to speak? Who has the power? <laughs> Which is part of the reason for having the coaching discourse as a name of the podcast anyway, yeah, wasn't it? In the really? paper, it's legitimate enunciator. Are you a legitimate enunciator and who gives you that legitimacy? Yeah, we just took it ourselves, right? <laughs> we did, but hopefully I claim to be an idiot in most, um, <laughs> most episodes. I would hate to be deemed to be anything other than that, just somebody with questions. But we also invite certain people on to speak to us, so we're legitimating them. Who who does get asked to speak and what do they get asked to speak about? I think that's a whole study in and of itself, isn't it? It really is. Um, yeah, that, that was, uh, I've been sort of wrestling with that the, the whole time, really. <laughs> no. that, yeah. Do you go with the, well, the whole, do you get stuff that align with what you think or do you get people who don't align with what you think and give them, you know, get, get into a discussion about it? I mean, one thing, and I was having this conversation the other day, actually, about, again, about the late Pat Duffy and the former sports coach, UK, and the, the almost a halcyon period where he, and I went to a few of these back in the mid you know, 2006, 2007, 2008. Um, well, he basically would drag, ask, invite different, you know, so we've got this idea. I'm going to bring in all this, all of these competing ideas and give everybody an opportunity to talk to everybody about their position and then stand with a whiteboard and say, okay, what do we agree on? What do we disagree on? What is their evidence for? What isn't there? And create some kind, not a consensus, but kind of a state of the, you know, a state of the field around this particular topic and they were really productive and it made for it made for you know i think it advanced the field and it really helped people understand other people's points of view in a respectful way whereas i get the sense now it's a lot more i don't know if i'm allowed to non-pc but a lot uh, a lot more tribal isn't it you know people have a tribe <laughs> <laughs> they bring all the tribe in and we tell each other how great they are and ignore everything, you know, ignore everything else that's going on, you know, the research and the evidence and the different perspectives. And I think coaching's, you know, not better for it, frankly. 
a great point. I think I, I, I definitely think about it as well, Anna, and it would be useful to hear from listeners what their views are, you know, in terms of the agenda that we might be trying to push. And if we are, the Coaching Discourse podcast, are part of a tribe, what is that tribe? Um, I, I, think, I think it would be really good to understand that. Yeah, agreed. Do we think we're pushing an agenda? So, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I hope not, but that, we don't know because you have to understand the lived experience. Of, and of course, that will be different because everybody has different bi biographies, so they'll all filter it differently. <laughs> I think the, 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 you know, again, I've written a little bit about this and a little bit around coach education. As soon as you choose to include something, by definition, you're not including something else. All right. And that's a that's a choice whether, you know, and it's not a neutral choice, is it? So I think you know from a pod you know from from a discourse you know if you make the discourse as broad as possible and talk about things from a different perspective and don't try to normalize or you know ex exclude perspectives on things then i think you're going to be doing fine but it's as soon as it's you know normalizing stuff and saying this is we, we are looking at coaching like this then you're starting to you are creating a discourse aren't you which is which no longer is you know nothing's ever neutral but you try to include as many views as possible don't you try to include as much as many different perspectives as you can i mean some some of the perspectives out there are absolute garbage but you still have to listen to them don't you you know it doesn't mean that you don't give them airtime to give people an opportunity to explain stuff just apply the appropriate filter chris right well yeah you don't have to you, don't, you know it's really i mean really interesting isn't it so i would fully support coaching in the game i fully support coaching through the game i fully support trying to minimize the amount of verbal instruction i give i fully support thinking about knowledge of results, feedback, I fully support a whole range of things. So there's a whole range of evidence-informed practice principles that I would go, yes, because there's evidence underpinning this and it's really good evidence that shows that if I do this, I'm, uh, at best, I'm going to do no harm <laughs> and at worst, I actually might help. But then there's a then we move up a level. That's that, you know, as I talked before about the separation between the epistemology and the method, there's a whole range of people who try to explain those things in different ways. Now I'm quite right to say, well, actually that's pseudoscientific nonsense <laughs> and you don't actually have any evidence to support that other than a circular argument and position papers. Whereas there's actually some empirical links to what's going on here. So I tend to veer towards you know, being a, someone in the academy who's supposed to be evidence-based and scientific. I tend to veer towards that. Now over time, evidence may emerge that supports different explanations in which case my views will change but there are some things i would reject now because it's just well one it doesn't seem to make sense to me and two there is just no evidence to support it so whether that's the filter or not i don't know whether that's my scientific filter or what but you, you just take you know have an open mind and on the balance of evidence here your explanation is more believable than your explanation for this. And that's the one I'm going with. Yeah, I think you're perhaps, I might have this wrong, but describing a fairly pragmatic position where your mind is open and when the facts change, so too might your ideas. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, over the years, I definitely have evolved, and you know, I I feel much more. You know, my my disciplinary background is is in sociology, and I talk about constructionism and social con- socially constructed things. But I'm quite prag, you know. But as a coach, standing on grass, working with or in a space working with athletes, some of some of that the disconnect, you know. It doesn't always explain what's happening, whereas other, you know, doing other things and other explanations work. So I think, I think I've, I don't know, kind of come full circle a little bit with this, and kind of been a, a bit, been a lot more pragmatic with 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 coaching practice, but also being open-minded to the ex, you know, what, on on the balance of argument and the evidence presented, what is the best explanation for this? And some of the more social stuff just doesn't offer a good explanation <laughs> it just doesn't now whether it will of course it, i don't know it might over time but you know looking at the evidence then you just have to kind of go with it otherwise what's what kind of scientist are you you know you're, you're not one at all are you it seems um it seems like a nice place to to step off the bus as it were uh, today, uh, and I guess um, I guess it leaves me um, this time to thank you, Chris uh, and Anna, um, for offering us up so much in this uh, episode. Um, it was quite nice for Laurie and I to, to sit back and, and um, uh, listen to Anna do some heavy lifting today, as it were, to use my term. Um, and I think definitely there are a couple of things that we might want to bring into the return of the two beer minimum. We've not had many, if any. Uh, uh, this series um, one perhaps just to uh, discuss and reconcile do we have an agenda um, and what is our discourse um, but two to maybe consider some of the points that both Anna and Chris offered us today around coach education, coach development coach learning and the future thereof so without further ado it's uh, thanks to you both and uh, we'll see you all again next time Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers. That was fun. That was awesome.